Hey, new producer Mondo. Yes, Neil. What do you call a group of men waiting for a haircut? I don't know. A barber cue. <laughs> cue, cue is another word for line. Barber, barber oh. cue. It's Memorial Day weekend. A lot of people, <laughs> a lot of people grilling. <laughs> Let me teach you how to eat. Let me teach you how to eat. How to marinate the meat. Let me teach you how to eat. It's a culinary treat. Let me teach you how to eat. Let me teach you how to make. Let me teach you how to make. AM 640, it is the Fork Report, everything food, every single Saturday from 2 to 5. That's three hours right here on KFI. I am your well-fed host, Neil Saavedra. How do you do? Welcome to our Memorial Day weekend edition of the Fork Report. We're going to get started talking about grilling here in just a second. I want to start with burgers. But first, I want to bring in our brand new official producer, Mr. Mondo Hernandez. <laughs> you clap and yell for yourself. Awesome. Yeah, that's not weird at all. Uh, welcome to the show, buddy. Thank you so much. Uh, I really appreciate it, and I'm excited for all the good foods and all the uh, fun topics we're going to talk about. The, f- the good meatses we'll eat. And- oh, yeah. Yeah. Zerts. Oh, so, you know Mondo, you hear him on with Tim Conway Jr. Monday through Friday from 6 p.m. to 10 p.m. We're thrilled to have him with us, so I just wanted to welcome him properly. You'll be hearing him quite a bit on the show. I just want to give you a heads up real quick. Um, being on Tim Connell's show, I have these uh, brain worms in my head. So whenever I hear you talk about your wife, I might say, your wife. Or I might say, ding dong, a couple times. It might just slip out. I just want to give you a heads up so you don't look at me like I'm a weirdo. Again, just wanted to welcome my temporary producer, Mondo, <laughs> to the show. It'll be great. Good, good fun. Great. I got to deal with that. Uh, it's like, uh, oh, man, cutting the steak with my knife. My knife! My knife! Good fun will be had by all. Uh, do you like grilling yourself, Mondo? Oh, I, I love grilling. I love grilling so much. For those of you who don't know, Mondo actually has a culinary background, uh, was professionally trained. And when it comes to grilling, are you – is there a particular – you're a burger person, you're a steak person, you're – what do you like to put on the grill? Uh, actually, whatever I can find in the fridge, I go with. Yeah. So if I have um, pears, for example, or peaches, mm. or if I have meats, I will grill the meats – um, just whatever I can, hot dogs, whatever I can find in the fridge. I prefer um, burgers. I like burgers. Yeah, I love I hot love dogs. I love corn. I love corn on the grill. Okay, so yeah. two Mexicans talking about grilling corn. <laughs> Thank God that's not a stereotype at all. <laughs> so, Mondo, do you have a a preference of thick patty, thin patty? Um, yeah, I go with the uh, thick patty, but I usually go with the uh, stuffed patty. Oh, you so, like the Juicy Lucy? Yeah, so I'll stuff it with uh, some cheese, mm-hmm. um, chop up some uh, raw onions, and then mix that in the meat so that when the burger grills, you're having that nice caramelization with the onions in it. That's uh, damn near meatloaf, buddy. Well, it's a borderline. You're just putting <laughs> – it's not like you're adding all, a you bunch of eggs, other stuff. Uh, some <laughs> breadcrumbs. And, uh, no, those Juicy Lucy's are great where you have everything on the inside and it just pulls apart. Oh, yeah. Also, ratios become really important in that. So let's let's get into burgers. Let's talk about burgers a little bit. 
Uh, I'm a big fan of the 20-80 rule. So you have uh, 80% lean, 20% fat. That gives you the juiciest burger. I have people all the time telling me, oh, you know what? I, uh, I made a burger at home. It doesn't taste like when I go out. I said, because when you go out, they put fat in the burger. So people buy 90 for, 95% lean ground beef and then wonder why it's not juicy and doesn't have that great texture and all those juices coming out. So 80% lean, 20% fat. You'd be surprised how many places that you go have that ratio, sometimes even a little more fat. And you can always ask for your meat to be ground a particular way as well. So don't be afraid to go to a good butcher shop or butcher shop at your local grocer. I will give a shout out to one of my favorite uh, grocer butchers. If you get a chance, you're grilling this holiday weekend, you got to get out to Super King if you have one in your neighborhood. Their their butcher department there and their meat department is larger than anyone I've ever seen inside a grocer. They have cuts that are super hard to find at other locations. I mean, oftentimes you'll have to go to a specialty shop or multiple different places to get it. So Super King, if you have one, there's seven locations in Southern California, uh, family-owned, and they they do it right. Just the ingredients they have are amazing. So check that out. You want to make sure you get that 2080. Uh, you don't want the patties to be dry. You want to use ground chuck or ground sirloin. Nice and fatty, good combination. If you want to get creative, maybe add a little pork to it. Sometimes you can even add some sausage to it as well. Just keep in mind that sausage can be overpowering, and you're going to taste even the, the tiniest bit of sausage in your burger is is going to let you know that it's there. Now, what's the ratio you would mix with a, a pork? If I'm in putting pork in, uh, I may do 25%. 25% pork in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, just to add, because pork can dry out very quickly too, and pork pork cooks at a different temperature than, uh, than beef does. However, once they're ground, you want to cook them both to about 160, let it raise to 165 to be done. That's another key when you're making a burger, especially grilling, is you're, there's going to be transitional heat. And if you cook it right to 165, which is where the recommendation is, then you're going to, it's going to go higher than that. It's going to go to 170, 175 in its resting period. So I take it off just before 160. And I let it raise the rest of the temperature while it's resting. You got to let it rest. It's going to pull those juices back in towards the center. Meat is flesh. And therefore, it's going to uh, have that give and take when it's near heat or when it cools down. The given rule is regardless of what temperature you cook it to, like I said, 160, that you should let it rest until the center is 120 degrees. That's when meat relaxes. So at 120 degrees, no matter what you're cooking, that's beef, when it's at 120 degrees, it's relaxed. That's when people say, oh, let it rest for five minutes. It it depends on the cut. (laughs) I've never understood that. You hear a lot of those general rules, Mondo, like uh, you'll hear, oh, well, you know, cook it to this temperature or cook it to that temperature and let it rest for five minutes. And it's like, well, what? how thick is the meat? Yeah, there's a lot of variables in that. Yeah. And I think also the temperatures, if you're outside, if it's a windy day, if it's a cooler day, 
that might help the meat uh, cool down faster as well. Yeah. And it's always hard to let meat rest, especially when you're grilling with a big family. Uh, they want those and you're burgers. Hungry. Yeah, they want those burgers now. <laughs> All right, we come back. We'll go to it through a different, a couple different styles of burgers, making patties. And all that good stuff, how how to heat your grill properly for patties. We'll cover that when we come back for our Memorial Day weekend show. So go nowhere. Report everything food every single Saturday from two to five. That's carry the one three hours every Saturday that we get to celebrate food, the people that make it, the culture behind it, and of course it's Memorial Day weekend. I hope you're having a good time hanging out with family, hanging out by the grill, uh, remembering uh, those that have uh, given their lives for us, and uh, enjoying yourself as well. So we're talking about grilling. And particularly starting off with burgers, because it's one of the things people bur- uh, you know, like to grill a lot. And, of course, I'm here with our new producer, Mondo Hernandez. And we were talking just a little bit about the different styles of burgers. I wanted to get into thick versus thin. Mondo said that he likes the thick patty, which is more of a, oh, let, let's say a, a pub-style burger, a little thicker. And uh, he likes when it's juicy, the juicy Lucy style where that you've got, yeah. ingredients, <laughs> you got ingredients on the inside like cheese. And you can even buy, you can go to Sir La Table, you can go online. There's these little juicy Lucy uh, makers. You don't like using those? Oh, what do you use? I'm sorry, Neil. I use my hands. I've seen those things. Okay. So I hear they work great. Here's, That's fine. Here's, here's the rule. <laughs> however you do it, because yeah. I've seen people do it with cans, however you do it. If you're going to use your hands, the key to using your hands, chill the meat big time beforehand and do it quickly. The reason why is your the temperature, the very temperature of your hand will melt the fat particles in there. And when you melt that, and have you ever seen somebody who's made a bunch of patties in their hands? They've got all that fat on their hand. Oh, well, yeah. well, guess where that fat isn't when you cook it? In the burger. So if you're going to do it with your hands, and some people do, you can do it with a glove. You can. Oh, I recommend wetting your hands first with ice cold water, keeping a uh, nice chilled uh, meat, and then doing it. Because if you touch your burgers too much or you start trying to formulate them and then pinching them around the side, that that alone can bring some of that fat out, and that fat is good. So I trust you don't do that. <laughs> I don't do that. Okay, I make them quick. Please tell me. I make them quick, but okay. I just uh, I just I like to use my hands. I've seen those. Machines, things, those plastic, and I've, I hear they work great. I hear they work fantastic, but I just I have too many knickknacks in my drawers. I don't need another one of those. Things. I know who who needs more stuff. Yeah. I will say to your point that ultimately, when you if you do it quickly and you do everything chilled, have, doing with your hands tends to not compress them, which makes them you know get those little pockets of juice on the oh, inside, right? yeah. which is really really great. Uh, but there's some time, there's some styles that don't work well with that, or when you're smashing, doing a smash burger, where you throw it on your uh, your griddle and then you smash, you let it caramelize for a little bit, and you smash it down. That will still get some of those in there. 
if you're making thinner patties, uh, you can do this with two plates. Just make sure that they're pretty robust plates. Otherwise, you can crack them. I've done that to one of my <laughs> – I do, did that to one of my mother's plates uh, doing this, and I had to go online and find oh, no. how to replace this particular – Did she know? Yeah. I mean, she was okay. there. I apologized, and then I had to go online to, to find a, an exact replica of that plate. But you can flip a plate upside down and use the bottom of it, and you'll see there's usually a rim there, a small rim at the base. And you wrap that in in your cellophane or your your plastic wrap, and then you put about four ounces, four to six ounces, uh, a ball in there, and then you get another plate, wrap that in plastic, and push it down bottom first as well. So it's bottom to bottom with the, and you'll push the, uh, a nice thin patty out. You don't want to beat it too much, but then you'll get that kind of in and out style thin fast food style patty and those if you're going to be doubling them up oh it's a thing of beauty that's a really good tip oh it's funny very easy but it kind of uh speaks to the quickness of it and because when you get them that thin what i was talking about using the heat of the hand ends up being a bigger problem because you have less meat to stay cold and so putting them making them small it doesn't always work you can also do that if you have a a tortilla press if you have uh, an aluminum or steel tortilla press, you can put. Why do you look at me when you say that? I, you don't have one. I have actually have a metal one and a wooden one. I have an. I have. <laughs> I have an aluminum one. I have a cast iron one. Oh wow! And uh, because if you do fl- flour tortillas, you you'll crack an aluminum one. Yeah. You'll snap the <laughs> handle on it. Uh, and then I have uh, bamboo ones for. That aren't for tortillas. They're for um, when you're. Oh gosh, when you're doing. I just I blanked on bananas. Uh, when you're flattening bananas. Yeah, but not not bananas. Plantains. Plantains. Yeah. yeah. So when you're uh, when you're making tostones or things oh, like wow. that. Oh wow! Nice. Um, and you, I've got one that does a bowl that makes a bowl. The tostone is a bowl, a fried banana bowl, <laughs> and then you can fill it with uh, ceviche and. That's Peruvian, Peruvian yeah. style. Oh, yeah. man. Oh, Oof. man. Forget about it. Oof. Anyways, back to burgers. A little side trip down a yummy lane is uh, keeping in mind seasoning. You want to season right before you put them on. Salt has a way of extracting salt, uh, extracting liquid, rather. So the earlier you put it on, if you're going to put it on before, like if you're going to put it on a steak, salt on a steak or something, leave it for 45 minutes. That will give enough time for it to extract the juices and then rest and the juices get sucked back in. Then it becomes like a dry brine. But in a burger, it can end up making the burger tougher if you put it on too early. You want to salt and and pepper liberally depending on the thickness of the burger right before it goes on the heat. You want to use direct heat when you're using a grill. You want that flame to be underneath it and you want to get that nice char, that caramelization on the outside if you are – you want it to, your heat to be on high, the basic rule is if you can hold your hand one or two inches above the grill for two to three seconds, that's high. And you're, you know, one, two, three, and it's too hot for you, then that's high and you're good. If you're using charcoal, uh, you want to cover uh, – to ash-covered coals, you know, when they get gray and they're red on the inside. When they're gray on the outside, they're producing even heat. 
It's even across the bottom. You want a, one layer of briquettes, if you're using briquettes, across the entirety of the bottom. You're going to want to replace them about every 30 minutes or so with about six briquettes uh, replaced in there, and that's going to keep the fire consistent. Now, are you waiting for them to get smaller, or how do you know? No. Do you just go 30 minutes? Yeah, No. The With... Um, with the briquette size in 30 in 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 30 minutes or so they start to the heat starts to drop because they're getting you're not going to see them necessarily get smaller unless you've shaken right. them because the ash is going to stay in shape they're going to be gray and they're going to you're going to start you're going to lose the sight of the red in the center and about every 30 minutes you just keep putting a little layer about 6 on there and it will keep it nice and hot we'll get more to those details and a, a special clip from the Tim Conway Jr. show coming up in just a moment as well. So stick around. It is the Fork Report. I'm Neil Savedra, KFI AM 6. Report all things food every single Saturday from two to five. Don't forget, you've got Mr. Mo Kelly coming up at six. Monique Marvez, Dark Secret Place with the Brian Suits, Coast to Coast AM, and uh, it starts all over again tomorrow at five AM with Elizabeth Espinoza. So go nowhere. I'm your host Neil Savedra. I'm hanging out with my producer Mondo. Of course, it is Memorial Day weekend. A lot of people going to be grilling, so we're talking burgers, and we were just about to get into. The difference between gas grills and the solid fuel grills. Quickly, if you're cooking, you want to cook burgers. We're talking about burgers. You want to cook them at a high heat quickly. That's the grilling method there. Get a nice char on the outside, but you want them to be cooked. Preferably, especially if you're just buying over-the-counter ground beef, you want to you want them to get to 165 to be safe. That's well done. I realize that. Now, if you grind your own meat and you're controlling all of that, then you can do it medium or something like that, and you'll be fine. People ask me all the time, what is the difference between ground? How come I can have a steak at medium rare or rare, but I can't have a burger that way? The reason is that unlike poultry or pork that have bacteria on the inside as well as the outside, Beef tends to have the bacteria or the the vast majority of the bacteria on the outside. That bacteria in a steak is seared off when you're cooking it. In a burger, what ends up happening is all that bacteria on the outside is ground to the inside when you grind it. So now you have equal parts of bacteria on the inside, equal parts on the outside. And if you don't know where the meat came from, how long it's uh, been sitting the, the type of cuts that they used in it, then you can end up putting yourself in a situation where you don't have control over uh, the quality there. So it's best if you're going to be, when I grind my own meat, I know that I keep it chilled at a certain temperature. I know that I have the particular cuts that I want. I'm controlling all of that. The cleanliness of my gear, of my the gear that I'm using, all these things. I recommend that, by the way. Grinding your own meat is super satisfactory, uh, uh, satisfying, rather, and it's easy, fun to do, and you can also ask for more fat, and then you can control how much fat is in your grind as well. Now, do you have a grinder, or do you use, because I've, I've seen people use a food processor, 
Um, also, mixers have those attachments where they actually have their own That's grinders. what I use. Okay. So KitchenAid has an attachment. KitchenAid, if you're not familiar, on the front of the mixer has a little disc that is removable, and it has a gear in there. That allows them to have add-ons or attachments to them, such as pasta rollers and, and things like that. One of the things they have is a grinder. They also have a sausage fitting on there so that you can fill sausage casings as well, make your own sausage on those. Nice. Yeah, they're really, really cool. Uh, you can get a hand grinder for almost nothing. They're very very inexpensive. They clamp to the side of your kitchen counter or table, and you hand grind them. Uh, you can use a food processor. The thing with a food processor, you have to practice pulsing so that you don't turn it into a pate or something. Like, it becomes this mush. Um, so you want to make sure that you get the uh, the cut size, uh, you know, right. Otherwise, the texture is going to be off, and it's going to be a little weird. But you certainly can do it with that. Uh, I've had great patties that way. Sometimes they're a little toothier. Um, but if you have a grinder, you'll have different discs that you can grind with. So you can do a heavy grind, or you can do a, a, a thin uh, grind as well. And so you can change the texture of the patty which makes it really helpful. If you're cooking with a gas grill, you want to keep the lid down. If you're cooking with a charcoal grill, leave the lid, uh, leave the lid off. Uh, it really deals with the type of fire. You've got gas creating its own energy by the gas. It's the fuel is different. Whereas you are using wind and other elements to keep the oxygen level perfect in a charcoal or solid fuel grill. And anything you do to lift the lid or anything like that is going to change that balance in the temperature. So you're going to want to keep that in a closed environment. It's much, much better. Um, there's arguments back and forth about how often you flip or if you don't flip at all. Are you are you a flipper, Mondo? Um, I do uh, one flip. That's, That's about it. Th- there, is, yeah. there is a school of thought that believes that you want to flip it once and once only. And I've gone back and forth on some of these. There's been studies fairly recently that show that flipping multiple times does not make the burger dry. It actually can make it juicier because it's moving. What happens as the meat constricts as it's over the heat. That's why the juices come to the top of the burger because the bottom of the burger is at the most intense heat. And so it's pushing the juices up to the top. That they, there is a school of thought that says if you're flipping multiple times, you're actually rotating, keeping the juices in the center. It keeps pushing it back and forth towards the center of the burger and therefore giving you a juicier burger. Now, would this be the same with thin patties as opposed to thicker patties? Or uh, That's an excellent question. I would say that the difference would be much more nominal on a thin patty. Right. I would tend to uh, stick to one flip on a thin patty. But – Logically, I guess in the, the the even though it's small, it's going to be doing the same thing, pushing it back and forth. Um, but that's one of those things where uh, people get lost in all of the arguments that you see. Let those patty rest. <laughs> I'm just thinking of my uncle looking at me. Hey, you got to flip it. Got to flip yeah. it now. Got to flip it. <laughs> Go ahead and flip that, son. Yeah, it's time to flip. Flip that. You don't flip that. I'm going to flick you in the air. <laughs> Everyone has their. You know what? Whoever's at the if it's their grill, leave them alone. You know, it's it's uh, it's weird to get up in someone else's grill. It is. No pun intended. But 
right? No, I, I feel, unless I'm asked, I don't want to man someone's grill because that's that's a lady. <laughs> it's a special the, bond. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. that's I, I don't want to get in between them and the beauty of that relationship. So I don't want to tell them how to cook on it either. They have the int- – I'm not going to stand it outside their window and say, ah, she doesn't like that. <laughs> no, you're on her hair. She's not enjoying that. Let 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 people do what they're going to do, and maybe you'll learn something as well. All right. Uh, we come back. I'm going to play a segment that I did with Tim Conway Jr. this past Thursday, and I'd love for you to hear it. It happens to deal with this very topic, so stick around. It is The Fork Report. I'm Neil Saavedra. Can- <laughs> I'm Neil Saavedra, Memorial Day weekend. Thanks for hanging out with us. We're talking about burgers and grilling. And this past Thursday, Tim Conway Jr., our good buddy Tim Conway Jr., on 6 to 10, Monday through Friday, was kind enough to invite me on. And he had a burning question about burgers. And I remember it like it was yesterday. Not bragging here, but made a few bucks here, thanks to you. And I bought a Big Mac last night on the way home. Yeah. Uh, and I got it home. Everything all right at home? Things are okay. Okay. And I cut it in half, and it's a better sandwich cut in half than it is whole. Is there anything to that, or is that called crazy? No, there, well, <laughs> there actually is a debate that goes on about sandwiches, and tie, it, tying it into burgers would probably be for the same reason. I think I heard Mondo uh, respond, and he's right. There's a ratios are what's important. It's not just, have you ever found, like when you eat a pizza or something, it's just the right amount of cheese or the right amount of crust or the right right amount of sauce. Any of those ratios are off and it can be a different experience. So when you cut a sandwich in half, there's a couple things that are happening. Visually, it's more uh, appealing and that makes a difference. Two, you get to see all the layers. Okay. You're looking at all the layers. Three, you get to choose what part you want. That's interesting. And, and you and you are going to get all of you're going to get you can take that bite out of the center like Mondo was talking about. And I mean, how many people eat pancakes or French toast and you put butter on it and you know that centerpiece is going to be the most syrupy and right. the most buttery. Right. So when you're biting into the center of the burger and you're looking at all those things, your mind tells you uh, psychologically, your mind is telling you every single flavor that you're looking at. So you look at the meat. Is that right? Yeah. You look at them. They've done these studies where they can, um, that you, certain colors, textures, your mind will go into its file cabinet and say, I remember that color. I remember that, that texture. Wow. And and before you even put it in your mouth, it starts telling you how you're going to experience it. That's why food porn online is so huge, right? And, and general and regular porn, I suppose as well. I like that cut. But, um. (laughs) (laughs) so when so when uh you're looking at it you're looking at the meat you're looking at the lettuce the tomato whatever toppings you put on the sauce you're looking at the bun in its most perfect ratio because it's the dead center and your mind is going that's going to be great that and the and the mouth feel is going to be different because you're not shoving a the round sandwich or even a square sandwich into your mouth when you cut it, and I'm I'm with you. I'm a diag- diagonal man. Yeah, you gotta go corner corner, because there's something about that bite 
that corner bite. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's the best. That is just a thing of beauty. Right. It's like sometimes you'll save it. Sometimes it'll be the first one. Sometimes you want it to be the last one. It's like parking uh, the, the bow of a yacht in your mouth. <laughs> yeah, I suppose so. You know, but you think feel about up, this upscale. way. Next time you bite into a burger, let's say you don't cut it. If you take two bites out of the uh, one out of the left and one out of the right, you get that little, you know, uh, jetty, that little thing that jets out. Right. right. You bite into that alone. You're going to have the same experience because you, you're going to be having all those layers again and it's all going to fit in your mouth. You're not cramming trying to you're going to get more bread if you eat the first bite. If you, that's what you're trying to. That's why people shove burgers in their mouth. They're trying to get to that centerpiece when you cut it. You get right there. Yeah. I also feel 100% that this is true, that if so, if I make a sandwich for myself, it's not as good as if somebody else makes it for me. There's psychology behind that as well. Even if it's exactly the same and there's no difference, there's something about the gratification of having somebody bring you food for two reasons. You anticipate it. Oh, that's good. You, you when, you're, when you're building it, you don't anticipate it the same way. Right. So if somebody's bringing it to you, all you can do is think about it, and again, your brain is triggering all those same things that go back to the, the file cabinet to go, oh, man, that, that grilled cheese, it's going to have ooey-gooey cheese in it. It's going to have that crust, that buttery crust on the outside. I'm going to bite in. It's going to crunch. The cheese is going to ooze out. And you start going through that in your head. It's different. A lot of people that cook will tell you that they, that they eat less when they're cooking. Because of the the experience is different, but if right. somebody brings something to them, that's that's why people say even well known chefs say I cannot duplicate such and such dish from such and such restaurant, even though they know technically how to do it. The experience of the location, it being made for you, all those things play a part in your enjoyment. I didn't know that. I didn't know that psychologically there was a, a big element of eating. They have uh, there's a couple. I think it's. Uh, uh, maybe it's Columbia University. There's a couple of universities that have uh, massive uh, departments, study departments, uh, specifically on the psychology of food. And they work with a lot of uh, big brands to help them understand what people will do. Uh, a lot of studies that have come out of there have changed the way we eat those 100-calorie packs. Right. That was an accident that, during a study on uh, if people would eat more or less if the, if the package was clear. Oh, really? And they could see what was in it. And they learned by mistake, um, they uh, learned, or if they'd eat more, if there was more or less in a, in a bag, that by mistake, they ended up uh, finding out that people would pay more for less wow. if the calories were labeled on there. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. All right, real quick, we've got a minute left, or else uh, management will bust my balls for going oh, over. Oh, I hate them. Yeah, you know what I mean? And, but you have a pizza oven at home. Yeah. It's an expensive one. Yeah, it's an alfresco. It's a uh, alfresco is a great line for out, outdoor uh, grills and and it gets uh, up to a thousand degrees. Oh yeah, the, in the dome it'll get up to a thousand degrees. And you have a, a temperature uh, indicator, temperature yeah, the infrared. It's infrared. A I've got one too. Yeah. And I, I use it around the house to find out where uh, leaks are coming in through the window, where I can put uh, you know a putty or patch in there so I can insulate my house. Use it for cooking. Yeah. You know, you can just. Put your hand up there if you feel the breeze. <laughs> it's just like a guy. No, I got to spend forty bucks to get this thing when I can just put my hand. There. I pointed at everything, and it'll tell you how cold. I I go into the freezer, open the freezer, I hit it in the freezer, and it'll tell me the freezer is like twenty eight degrees. Yeah, I want I, when you're cooking pizza, especially. Now use it on the grill. I have one for the grill, and then I have one for the pizza oven because you want to know the deck, what you're putting, 
that temperature versus the dome. How much? Should the, what, the, what should the deck be? Five hundred degrees. Well, it depends on what your thickness, what kind of pizza you're doing. But I I do it just under five hundred for the deck, and then it will hit eight to a thousand in the dome. That's how you get the burns on your hand if you go in and get that pizza. You, you don't. And you get bang, 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 bang. Ow, that ow, thing, ow, 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 ow. That thing, even ambient heat, like the ambient heat in there is super hot. That's amazing. I had a, uh, a Chinese uh, restaurant today. I went and I about 10 minutes into the meal. Yeah, I heard your racist rant. <laughs> <laughs> 10 minutes Why into the meal. Why do you think Neil's back in here to talk to you? 10 <laughs> minutes into the meal, I took a bite of my Kung Pao chicken and I burned my mouth. That's how great it is. It was that hot still. Oh, yeah. That's great Chinese food. Yeah, it's excellent when it comes out hot. You know, But it's hot 10 minutes into the meal. Well, you That's know why? Great. Because if it's cooked properly, it, they're using um, these special, uh, they're like torches up against that wok. Oh, I mean, yeah. Have you ever seen the BTUs, oh, yeah. those things put out? It's like uh, 60,000 BTUs coming up underneath the... But that meal was 10 times better than what I would have gotten at Panda Express, and it was about the same price. Why would people not go and sit down and get that meal? People in too much of a hurry, Neil? Is that what's going on? Maybe so. Is that what's happening? Uh Our buddy Tim Conway Jr., the asker of questions, the deep thinker, always keeping me on my toes. Thanks to Tim and the gang for having me there. We'll be right back with a bunch of cooking tips, so go nowhere. This is KFI AM640 Los Angeles. Let me teach you how to eat. Let me teach you how to eat. How to marinate the meat. Let me teach you how to eat. It's a culinary treat. Let me teach you how to eat. Let me teach you how to make. KFI AM 640. Hey, everybody. It is the Fork Report. Everything food every single Saturday. You know, we give you tips and and things as we come together and talk about food every Saturday. These are like reverse tips, sort of. It's like things you, you shouldn't do in your kitchen because they can cause harm or maim you or something. And some of them may seem, you know, super obvious, but it's a good reminder, maybe. Like, never trying to catch a falling knife. I know that sounds like, well... That's a horrible idea. Of course I wouldn't try and catch a falling knife, but you'd be surprised. It's a natural reaction to want to grab it just like you would anything else that's falling off anything, right? So what you want to do if a knife falls is take a step back and uh, let it fall. Sucks, but that's the way you're supposed to do it. And, and wear shoes when you're cooking in your kitchen. And I've said this before. I've told this story on on the air before. But I was cleaning the blade of a food processor. And, you know, it looks... It's not like the yin and yang symbol. But, you know, it's kind of got these wings that go out. And they're blades. And they're going... um, uh, They're kind of... I don't know. One's sort of U-shaped or... I don't even know how you describe that. It looks like like wings or flappers or fins or something. But they're sharp, 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 sharp. And it slipped out of my hand and dropped directly on my right foot. And it went thunk. And you could just, it dead, the sound I heard, I knew it didn't go into the wood floor. It went right into me. And it went into my right foot and uh, had to go to the hospital or the emergency rather and have them 
them clean it and stitch it and all that good stuff. So everyone, if you're in a kitchen for any length of time, you're going to you're gonna get cut or something. The key is to try and whittle those opportunities down to the smallest numerical possibility so that you're not walking around with four fingers or, you know, just a couple of toes. Because you need the little piggy that goes to the market, right? Wee, 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 all the way home. So be careful. Don't catch your knives. Let them fall to the ground and and kind of jump back and let them fall and you're fine. Adding dry things like flour or cornstarch to hot liquid. If you do that, that's what ends up getting those really chunky kind of hard to whisk out clumps. So there's something called a slurry and that's when you add these dry ingredients to a cool liquid first and you kind of stir them up, make a slurry and then whisk that into the hot liquid because you're using these things to thicken something, whether it's a soup or a sauce or whatever it is. And this process allows those lumps to be gone and then integrate uh, into the hot liquid that you're trying to thicken rather than just tossing the flour in there. And then you get those little clumps and they'll stay clumps. They'll stay those little clumps of cornstarch or flour. So make sure that you don't put dry things like flour or or cornstarch rather into hot liquid. No, 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 not a good thing. Uh, this one is a little strange, but it's something I've come across that I've seen people do. And because let's say you go out and you buy yourself one of these handy dandy, beautiful, hot, uh, you know, these pizza stones, right? The, they're all kinds of different shapes. Now you can find rectangles, squares, you can find, of course, the round ones. They're really great. But what ends up happening is because it, the pizza stone is used in the oven and most people don't like to move it back and forth, is they keep it in the oven. That's fine. Uh, just keep keep in mind that that thing gets hot, right? But you keep it in the oven, and then what happens is people think, you know, oh, I'll use it for to cook anything on. And it's really made for breads or things like pizza dough, and it just gets nice and hot, and it crisps, crisps up that dough, and it's great. But then people start putting things like frozen foods on them, including frozen pizzas. But if you put a frozen item even appetizers or a frozen pizza on a hot pizza stone in your oven, it can and often will crack that stone. It'll just crack it right uh, down the center, maybe even multiple pieces. So if you don't want to damage that, don't want to cause problems, make sure that you don't put frozen things that you're trying to heat in your oven on a pizza stone. Uh, Just remove it before it gets hot because those things get piping 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 hot and by the way if you're interested in pizzas and you know the pizza stones and stuff like that for your for cooking in your oven at home try a pizza steel you can find them at like sur la table or places like that even online um it's about a quarter inch thick piece of steel and often they're shaped similar to a pizza stone either rectangular or round or things like that but the way they distribute heat is different and more efficient actually than stone and really beautiful. So I use both, but I like that pizza steel if I'm cooking a pizza in my home oven. Another little extra another little extra tip for you there that you don't have to pay for. How about that? Dealing uh, with heat at all inside your kitchen is, I mean, that's, that's the main thing you're probably gonna, that's probably gonna happen to you when you're working in your kitchen is a burn, 
Let's hope you're not cutting yourself all the time, but it's probably a burn because you're around with their hot pots and pans, and these are all conductors. You've got metal things retaining or passing heat, right? And you've got the grates in your oven that your arm touches. I have little silicone pieces that fit on the front of those because you reach into an oven and those often you get caught on your forearm there. Well, there's something you might not be thinking about when you use an oven mitt, something that's supposed to protect your hand. I'll tell you in just a moment what you need to watch out for when using an oven mitt, a cloth oven mitt, and I'll explain. We go through more things you should never do in your kitchen when we return. It is the Fork Report. I'm Neil Saavedra, KFI AM 640. We'll be there, no hesitation. Brotherhood's our rule, we cannot bend. KFI AM 640, it is the Fork Report, everything food. And beverage, celebrating food and beverages every single Saturday from 2 to 5, 3 hours right here on KFI. I'm your well-fed host, Neil Saavedra. How do you do? We've been talking about uh, things you shouldn't do in your kitchen. These are like reverse tips. You know, oftentimes they give you tips. Hey, you should do this, you should do this. These are more like anti-tips. They're things you shouldn't be doing in the kitchen uh, because they're going to hurt you or maybe hurt um, your utensils or your pots and pans or things in your kitchen or maim you or something. All things, by the way, if you're, if you're playing the home game, all things you don't want to happen to you and your kitchen. So uh, where did I leave off? Oh, I was talking about, of course, the things that you're most worried about in your kitchen uh, as far as harming yourself uh, are heat and sharp things right well heat is one of those things that can play tricks on you sometimes because it's hard to tell when something's hot unless it's the flame itself or something is really getting red hot but there's also a little bit of science lesson in conductivity when it comes to moving around your kitchen the things that you use and how you use them for instance an oven mitt or a towel you use those all the time don't you i know I know you do. You use those in your kitchen to pick up hot things. So you wrap the hand, you know, the towel around your hand, or you grab yourself that cloth uh, oven mitt, and you grab the hot pots and pans, which is not a bad idea. All good ideas. However, something that happens in your kitchen often is spills, whether it's water or what have you, some type of liquid, often water. Um, spills, or you grab something that has hot water in it and it gets on to the oven mitt or it gets onto your towel. Well, cloth does not conduct heat very well. That's why you make things like towels and oven mitts out of cloth. But what does conduct heat well, and it's one of the things, one of the reasons why you use it in cooking, is water. So if you get a, your cloth wet, like your towel or your oven mitt that you're going to be grabbing some a hot pan with, if it's wet, that heat will transfer through the water or the liquid, burning you. So you're going to end up, it's going to, not. it's not like you're going to be grabbing it without it, but it's certainly not going to insulate the same way that the cloth would on its own. So keep that in mind, that 
once that water hits there, um, it becomes, it transfers that heat much more quickly than you might imagine. And even with the cloth sometimes, you ever do this? You, you Not usually with oven mitts because they're, they're insulated and built differently. But, you know, if you're a little lazy and you grab that towel, kind of wrap it around your hand, go in there, and it's maybe a double, triple, or quadruple fold that you did. Man, halfway from that oven to the trivet or wherever you're going to place it on your countertop, <laughs> it'll sneak up on you very quickly. Uh, this is one that I've said many, many times before, and I preach this all the time because this is one of those things that is passed down from generation to generation because you've seen, you've seen your grandmother do it or your grandfather do it or your mom do it or your dad do it, so you do it. And I usually remind you around the holidays when you're cooking poultry more, maybe with turkeys or whatnot. But it's it's not a bad thing even during the summer to be reminded, don't wash poultry before cooking it. It's it, Don't do it. Yeah, I don't know who originally thought, hey, we're going to wash the poultry in the sink and that way it's going to get the bacteria off. Well, I understand the basic logic of that, but think about what you're doing, what you're what you're you're trading there, thinking that you're doing something great. You're going to be cooking your poultry to a, the thickest part of the poultry to an internal temperature of 165 degrees. That's when you know it's done. Now, I tell you often cook it to around 160 and let it raise the rest of the the five degrees, uh, and that way you're not overcooking it. But regardless, you're going to get that, that bird up to 165 degrees, and that is going to kill the bacteria. Now, unlike a steak, pork and poultry have bacteria not only on the outside, they have it on the inside of the flesh as well. Now, beef can have some, but not as much, nearly as much as uh, poultry. Therefore, that's why you can cook uh, steaks to medium rare or even rare, but you wouldn't do, or even raw, but you'd never do that. There's no, um, you know, chicken tartare anywhere that you're going to find. I wonder if there, I wonder if anybody's ever, I don't think so. I do think so. But that's going to happen during cooking. If you try and clean that bacteria off in your sink, think about what happens. And it's not like bacteria is this weird color that you're going to see once you wash it off. What you're going to do is have now clear bacteria-laden liquid all over your sink, possibly your dry, your washed and dried plates and cups and everything else, silverware or on top of your countertops, maybe even your floor, maybe even your clothing. And so now you've taken that controlled area of having the bacteria on the bird that you're going to be cooking and killing the bacteria anyway and you've splashed it all around your kitchen and it's in your sink and it's just nasty so don't do it and i get a lot of people going what but i've always been taught you're supposed to you know clean your poultry no clean your vegetables and, and fruit and things like that but you don't need to clean the poultry cook your poultry and you'll be fine it's a big one that i see people doing over and over and over and over again. Uh, I got another one I'll tell you in just a moment that deals with uh, beef or poultry and how to clean it up because I see people do this one all the time and you're cleaning it incorrectly 
And when you clean stuff like beef and poultry up, like the juices, incorrectly, you cause bigger problems. I'll explain how to do it in just a moment. So go know where it is. The Fork Report, KFI. KFI AM 640. Hey, everybody, it is The Fork Report. Everything food, every single Saturday from 2 to 5. That's three hours right here on KFI. So basically, this is what we do. We get together every Saturday uh, to celebrate food, beverages, the people that make the food, the the culture behind the food, all these things. Uh, From a standpoint, it's a little different than most food centric shows oftentimes you have a chef hosting it which i'm not i like to cook at home but i'm not a chef or a food critic uh and i'm not a food critic i'll tell you if i like something or if i don't and why i like it and why i don't but um not a professional in any way shape or form that way just enjoy food i hope you do as well by the way i am your well-fed host neil Savedra. so let's get back into some of these things you should never do in your kitchen now, these are kind of reverse tips, if you will. Uh, they're, they're anti-tips, things that you shouldn't be doing in your kitchen because you can cause harm to you or your, your stuffs, your stuffs around your pots and pans or what have you. I was talking about cleaning up spills before we went to a break here. And one of those spills that you get is like a ground beef or poultry, the juices get out onto your countertops and you think, I want to clean these up, which is the... Which is the proper thought to have, by the way. But the tool that you do this with is important because I see people grab a sponge, take that sponge, and clean that up. And I get it. That's you know, that's what a sponge is for, right? But a sponge, the thing that makes a sponge so great and so helpful in the kitchen is that it's porous and it absorbs everything, right? But it has all these little nooks and crannies in there. And the minute you start start wop, wiping up poultry or ground beef or juices from a steak or whatever that's raw, all that's all got bacteria in it. And now that gets into the center of the sponge where that it's hard to get those things out, and it becomes very very nasty. And there are some people that will just zap them in the microwave or even put them on a heat setting, a hot setting in your dishwasher and those things are fine they help to sterilize and all that but really you don't want to be wiping it up with that the way i do it at my house is i wipe them up with paper towels um, it may seem a little wasteful but it's safer and then i use a disinfectant wipe or use a disinfectant spray and then you can wipe it up the what i like about the wipes the disinfecting wipes is that you can get that up and then you know toss them and you don't worry about the bacteria. I'm not saying you have to use these these disposable type things for every single spill. It's just those things because there's a difference between cleaning your kitchen and sanitizing it. And you don't want that, uh, that bacteria all over the place. Another fun reminder is hot glass and cold glass look exactly the same. Now, you may not be using a whole lot of uh, glass in your kitchen. 
And if you do, you're probably using Pyrex. Well, Pyrex is that glass. It's been around for a long time. The way it's tempered, it's heated, and it's made, allow it to be very resilient uh, in the kitchen. And if you've ever dropped that stuff, whatever you dropped it on probably broke long before the Pyrex broke. And they make your measuring uh, they make measuring cups and things like that out of it as well. And it's great stuff. Uh, it can withstand high temperatures. Uh, keep in mind, it, unless it's Pyrex and it's tempered like that hot glass, a hot glass dish, you don't want to put that on a cold surface, a wet surface, or anything like that. Um, you put or a hot pan on a glass table or something. You do any of that hot liquid in glass, it, you you run the risk of it shattering unless it's made and tempered specifically for that type of thing like Pyrex. Here's a simple one. It's one that you'll hear chefs say all the time, but it's just a good rule of thumb. Never, ever serve a dish before you taste it. I, it seems simple, right? And you're thinking, well, well, of course not. But even a dish that you've made over and over uh, again, taste and make sure. There's all kinds of different variables that can change um, the way something tastes. And you might think, oh, by, by the eye, I did it the exact same way I've always done it. It felt the same way, but maybe there's something that changed it somehow, an ingredient or something. So always taste it uh, before you serve it. it. The likelihood of it needing more salt is probably pretty large. It's just the way things work. And add a little bit more salt to it, and you'll be golden. Salt uh, food should never taste salty. I mean, things like potato chips, French fries. Yes, I get it. You're tasting the salt that's actually on the outside of what you're having. But in a meal, when you're making something, a stew or what have you, a soup, um, it shouldn't taste salty. That salt is actually a flavor enhancer, and it enhances all the other flavors around it. So that's one of the reasons why you want to check it. Uh, if you're chopping chilies, peppers, things with uh, oil in them, the, you see the what gives that heat when you're using chilies or peppers or anything like that is the capsaicin. It's this oil that's on the inside, and it tends to go in those veins that you see on the inside uh, or the seeds, but it's also within the flesh as well. And that is what carries that heat, but it's oil-based. And it will stick to things like your fingers. And if you're cutting those things and you forget to wash your hands, I mean, very good because, again, it's oil-based. And you touch your eyeball ball, as one of my neighbors used to call them when we were kids, I just got hit in the eyeball ball. If you, get, if you put that on your eyeball ball, um, it's going to burn. And you will thank me for reminding you to wash your hands when you're chopping uh, chilies and peppers and things like that, S especially with higher Scoville units. And the Scoville units are what they use to measure the heat of a chili or uh, peppers and things like that, right? So keep that in mind. The higher that number, uh, the more the more bite that thing's going to have. I think it was, was it, uh, if I remember correctly, Wilbur Scoville who came up with that that scale and if you keep in mind things like um what's one that you would use a jalapeno you'd probably use a lot jalapeno is probably about 3500 scoville units and then if you compare that to like a sweet pepper or a bell pepper or something that's like a zero um there's really not any heat in those so you don't want to be touching your eye well that's um 
There's one that I want to share with you as we're uh, bumping up against the clock here. Oh, oven fires. I'll tell you what not to do during an oven fire uh, when we return. Maybe you're having one right now. Well, you'll have to wait. I'm sorry, but I'll get to it. It is the Fork Report. I'm Neil Saavedra. K- KFI AM 640 is the Fork Report. Everything food every single Saturday from 2 to 5 right here on KFI. I'm your well-fed host, Neil Saavedra. How do you do? Don't forget you have Mr. Mo Kelly coming up at 6 o'clock. Then you've got Monique Marvez. You have Dark Secret Place with Brian Suits, with the Brian Suits. And, of course, tomorrow morning you have Sunday mornings with Elizabeth Espinosa. So go nowhere. Uh, when we when we last left you, I was telling you about uh, oven fires. If a fire starts in your oven, do not open the door. These are part of my anti-tips for you as we look at what you should never do in your kitchen. These are reverse tips. You, sh- you shall, These are the you shall nots to the normal tips that we give, which are you shall. I guess you could you could rewrite all of these to be you shells. You shall you shall never open the door. If a, if <laughs> this is why I didn't write the Bible by the way. If the fire starts in your oven, don't open the door. Why? Basic science says uh, that it feeds the fire with the oxygen. So you can give it you'll give it more oxygen cuz if you notice your your oven is, you know, insulated and it has the seal on it and all that is to keep the balance of how it cooks and everything like that and keep that heat in so you open that up gives the fire oxygen and it makes it worse so first thing you should do turn off the oven keep everything sealed and allow the fire to burn itself out hopefully if it doesn't go out or you see it um, getting larger or anything like that of course call 911 and uh, call for help you should also have this little side note for you Thou shall have a fire extinguisher in your kitchen nearby and have one that's rated for that's you know for a kitchen and they'll tell you what they're good for uh, and things like that but even if you have a pan a pot or something and a fire erupts in it you, you want to cover it for the same reason now if it's uh it's oil and things like that uh, baking Soda will do the trick. Uh, baking soda will smother it and put that out. But always, as always, uh, keep yourself at a distance and keep yourself safe in the kitchen. Uh, it's really You go back into history, by the way, another little side note. You go back into history and you'll find that women back in the day, um, in deep, deep history, back when uh, women were the only ones in the kitchens and the kitchens... Uh, were a very dangerous place that a good majority of women um, in the early founding of our country died in kitchens. They were very dangerous places. Now they've gotten better, of course. Uh, you go into uh, the South or certain places and you can see old structures where the kitchen wasn't even attached to the whole to the house. And the reason why they did that is because the kitchen often burned down. So it wouldn't take the whole house with it. Nowadays, much much different. 
I get it. And it's a better place to be, a lot more safety in your kitchen, but still can be dangerous if you get uh, too cocky or you you know aren't don't know basic safety and things like that. You're dealing with a lot of sharp and hot things. Keep that in mind. Let's to get to something a little more pleasant, shall we? Uh, if you've ever tried to beat egg whites that have just a tiny bit of yolk in them, that protein in there, that yellow uh, yolk in there. Uh, it ain't going to happen. You could whisk and whisk and whisk. You could beat and beat and beat. It ain't going to happen. You're not going to make that meringue with the high peaks on it or anything like that. So start over. It just changes the uh, structure and the way it works. So just start over. Don't stir your rice unless you're making something like risotto or something. You don't need to stir your rice. It cooks more evenly and better if you leave it alone. Uh, I see this done, and I'm not going to lie to you. I do this on occasion, but it's it's good to get out of the, the practice of this. And I even see people do it like on the Food Network uh, and cooking shows where they scrape their knife against the cutting board to move it off the cutting board into what you're cooking. Now, you're you're probably not a chef. And you're probably not having to get that entree out super quickly or things like that. You don't need to cut corners. There's two ways I've seen people. The reason why you don't want to do it, by the way, is because you're you're jacking your knives. You're pulling your knife blade, the thinnest part of your knife, across a surface, and it's going to dull it. So you don't want that. But I've seen people turn it over and use the thick part, the back of the knife, which, yes, will protect the knife, but now you have the blade side peering up at you. So the most dangerous side is now facing you, which is never a good thing. Uh, so in that circumstance, it's kind of like, ugh. It's, it's best, if you can, to just uh, get a, uh inexpensive bench scraper. They're great, and they help in other things. Sometimes they have measurements on them, little measuring marks that will help you for other things or uh oftentimes they work really good for like they're like a dough cutter uh, very good for cutting pizza dough and things like that while it's still raw um, because if you've ever tried cutting that sometimes it gets a little trickier it tends to spring back to each other uh, and they can work for that as well so keep those things in mind don't confuse or use baking soda and baking powder interchangeably they are not interchangeable yes they're both leavening agents and uh they make things rise but the way they do it is very different they're unique unto themselves as to uh how they do it and what they need to make that happen you'll be incredibly disappointed if you interchange them without understanding the chemistry of what's going on and what they need to activate. So uh, don't do that. I feel like I'm wagging my finger and I'm not, I'm not trying to wag my finger, I assure you. Most of these things are things that I've learned the hard way or I've come across uh, and thought, I wonder what the best way to do this is um, because I'm constantly coming across you know, things. You've heard over and over before don't use a dull knife. It's the truth. A dull knife, I know it seems counterintuitive. You're thinking a dull knife, you're not going to cut yourself. A dull knife is way more dangerous than a sharp knife because you end up pushing harder on it or cutting differently and you can cause harm. Keep your knives not only sharpened 
uh, probably for your your average user like you and me, probably once every six months is fine. Uh, but also honed, hone it every time you put it into the block or wherever you keep your knives and every time you take it out. And that's what that honing steel is for. It's not a sharpener, it's a honing steel. It's making it straight again. So keep that in mind as well. Okay, it is the Fork Report. I'm Neil Saavedra, KFI AM 640. Let me teach you how to eat. Let me teach you how to eat. How to marinate the meat. Let me teach you how to eat. It's a culinary treat. Let me teach you how to eat. Let me teach you how to make. KFI AM 640. It is the Fork Report. It's our Fork of July special. Everything food every single Saturday from 2 to 5 right here on KFI. Three hours we come together and celebrate food and talk about the people that make it and the culture behind it and all that good stuff. So thanks for hanging out with us. I am your well-fed host, Neil Saavedra. And uh, let's start with some food myths. And they're a lot of fun because what happens with food is food kind of takes on this this apprentice-master relationship. You have somebody in your life, a mother, a grandmother, a father, a grandfather, who cooks and they pass down information to you, right? So you learn how to cook that way. And you find out all of your information starting that way, and then you build upon it. So what happens with this type of passing down of information is not a whole lot of questions are asked other than, um, how do I do it? Not, why do you do it this way? Or what makes this happen? And so we pass down food myths, and some of them have been around for hundreds and hundreds of years. And yet, we, it takes a long time to correct them. And we end up kind of perpetuating them. So here's one that I've heard time and time again. Microwaves are inherently unhealthy. I don't understand. I think it was because it was new technology when it came out and that kind of flipped people out. What is a microwave? How is it doing it? Didn't have a flame, didn't have the heating element. Now microwaves, they've been kind of this target of what I feel is undeserved bad press for a long, long time. So people claim they destroy enzymes and the nutritional value of food. Well, microwaves work. I I don't know why I'm going into a science lesson, but you understand this. Microwaves work by using what? (laughs) Wait for it. Microwaves. It's a form of radiation, not not a harmful form in the way it's used, but it's very low it causes the molecules in your food to move quickly. Now, when molecules are moving quickly um, is when they're hot. So this movement generates heat and cooks your food and you know, makes it fine. Okay, It's a quick way to, to heat up your food. The crazy thing about this particular myth and the claim that microwaves are inherently unhealthy and that they destroy enzymes and nutritional value of food is the fact that anytime you're cooking, any type of cooking destroys some enzymes and nutrients. It just goes with the process of cooking. And then the most dangerous part of a microwave, truly, if you want to be honest with yourself, is they, they make you really dependent on convenience, right? And what comes with convenience? You end up having a super over-processed food 
that you want on demand and that's the dangerous part of a microwave but the way they you the way they cook things it's not as a matter of fact there's some things that are even more nutritious uh, when you cook them inside a microwave very efficient very simple microwaves aren't evil uh, it just depends what you're putting in them if you're just putting in you know frozen food all the time or a bunch of processed stuff then you've got a problem but in general no here's another one and you can tell that sometimes these food myths uh, are attached to bias. Uh, maybe it's somebody's a vegetarian. Maybe it's somebody's a hardcore meat eater. Whatever it might be, um, people get these have these biases, and then they try and back them up by making these claims. This one's a weird one, and the outcome is hilarious to me. So, meat rots in your colon. Have you ever heard that one? Sometimes these these juice cleanse or whatnot will tell you that you've got like pounds and pounds of this rotted meat in your colon, which I know <laughs> is not a pleasant thought on this this fine holiday weekend, but it th- this is a claim that I've heard lots of people make. So meat rots in your colon. Not true. Absolutely false. But the strange thing about this one, because it's often used by people that say you've got to use these juice cleanses or uh, you know, uh, by vegetarians or, or things like this, is you, you know what does rot in your colon? Fibrous veggies and grains. However, that's not even a bad thing. This fermented matter ends up feeding the bacteria in your gut. It's a good thing. So I people get flipped out about this stuff. They think uh, you've got all this, the thought of having pounds and pounds of of you know, rotting meat in your colon, not attractive, when the truth is, well, it's the veggies and the grains. But again, that they're going through that rotting process is not a bad thing. It ends up uh, feeding the bacteria in your gut. That's a good thing. Yes, even even bacteria needs to eat. I should just do a, I should do a special segment every week for bacteria that listen. Maybe bacteria are listening to the show and they want to hear me talk more about fibrous veggies and grains as they break down in the lower colon and um, where they can find them. Maybe not. Uh, well, what was the other one? There was a gum one, right? The gum, like if you swallow your, your bubble gum, it stays in your body for seven years or whatever. That's garbage as well. Because your, your bo- here's, here's the truth of the matter. Your body is incredibly efficient. It really, really is. Even with all the garbage and stupid things we do to our bodies, all the garbage we put in it, everything that we do, they are really efficient and they're designed to do, every, filter out toxins, to do all these things very, very well. So it's it's a little obnoxious that when you look around, you see all these uh, different cleanses being hyped and all these different things of people saying, that you need to do this because your body's not doing it. Your body absolutely is. It cleans itself out regularly and does it in a way that keeps your body in balance. It doesn't mean that you can't cut down on some of the garbage. I get it. But all of that that stuff about having to cleanse a body that is, it's almost as if people, I know people sometimes make this these false reasonings for things. And they think, well, it makes sense to me. But really, when you look at it, your body is built up of filters and processes to do all this. So you don't need that. Meat's not rotting in your colon. Uh, we come back. Um, uh, you've got you've got to have breakfast. There's another one. You have to eat breakfast in order to lose weight. 
I'll uh, tell you about that myth in just a moment. So go nowhere. It is the Fork Report. KFI AM 640, it is the Fork Report. Everything food, every single Saturday from 2 to 5, we celebrate food, we celebrate the people that make food, the culture behind food, all those great things every single Saturday. I am your well-fed host, Neil Saavedra. Thanks for hanging out with us. Right now, I am going through food myths. There's a lot of them out there. Food myths end up building up because... People keep passing them down. You hear things over and over again. Uh, you know, as a kid, you remember your mom always telling you, don't go outside with your, your hair wet or you're going to catch a cold. Eh, no science behind it. Just something that gets said and then passed down. So we're going through some of these, maybe dispel some of them for you and give you some insight as to what the real deal is. Uh, it's proven that you must eat breakfast in order to lose weight. False, false, false. So uh, eating a healthy bref- breakfast may help uh, psychologically because you're you're eating something and so you're kind of telling yourself that you, you, you'll be fine for a little while longer and that may help you possibly. But in the reality, uh, breakfast as a weight loss mechanism by itself is, has not been proven at all. The truth of the matter is a very basic truth If you're hungry in the morning, eat breakfast. If you're not hungry in the morning, don't eat breakfast. There's a lot of these myths surrounding that, especially with weight loss. And you just have to know yourself. You have to know your body. If you're hungry in the morning, then yes, eat something. You don't have to go nuts, but have something. And then you'll, you'll feel better. You won't be thinking about food the whole time throughout the early morning or the late morning. Uh, until your next meal. This is also one of those things that gets tied into another myth about eating late. Eating late is not a problem. Your body's going to digest and and it's going to break down food. It does it all the time. Now, when you go to sleep, does your body slow down a little bit? Yes, it does. It slows down and it starts to to use uh, the fuel differently, but it's 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 still going through the process. So if you're an active person, when you get back up again, you're going to be using those calories. It's not like they're just going to sit in your stomach and you're, you're going to get fat because of the time you eat. It's about the continual cycle of getting fuel in your system and then using that fuel. Another myth I hear all the time, never use wooden cutting boards with meat. And I guess this goes back to the fact that people are fearful that wood being porous is going to absorb the the bacteria and the raw meat, the juices that come off the raw meat, and they're going to be hard to get out of the board. And this is interesting. I'll get into why that may not be a bad thing. So uh, this is assumed that if you have plastic, it can be washed in a dishwasher, you know, high heat, and therefore it can be sanitized. There is a lot of research uh, I think it came out of Davis, actually, um, the University of Davis, that it discovered that there is no significant antibacterial benefit 
from using a plastic cutting board over a wooden one. And I know that there, and again, it's one of these things where you hear a story and it sort of sounds right, so it gets locked in. But here's the weird thing. The research shows that even if you apply bacteria to a wooden cutting board, okay, so you're cutting meat on there and it gets in there, its natural properties cause the bacteria to pass through the top layer of the wood, and it, but it keeps going down. Now, this is what you're afraid of, right? You're afraid of using the wooden cutting board because the meat, the juices, the bacteria is going to get in there. But this is what the research has found, that it does get into the wood, but it settles deep inside the wood. And it's very difficult to bring that out unless you split the board open or you deeply, deeply gouge the board. So having wood can maybe even be better having a wood cutting board than using a plastic or a ceramic or glass or something like that because it actually buries it in there. With the plastic ones, I will tell you, you get the white kind of plastic cutting boards and you look and you see cut marks on there that look uh, dark. If you were to look at those under a microscope, they're dark because it's mildew and stuff that is built up in those those little cuts. Now, I use many different types. I have wood boards. I think I have a glass board, uh, bamboo. I have plastic, of course. The key is that you want to you want to clean them under hot water. Now, with a wooden board, you want to dry them off immediately, immediately, because you don't want them to warp. But the plastic ones, you want to get a high heat and you want to scrub and you want to get those out. You want to get those cut lines too because that's where bacteria builds up in those cut lines that you've created while you're, well, cutting on your cutting board. Here's one we hear all the time and I've kind of separated it from, we'll get into some grilling myths in a little bit as well, but I've kind of separated this one out from the, the grilling myths just because I think it's such a, a big one that is... is uh, constantly handed down i hear it over and over again from it, very great from great chefs and uh, people in the food industry continue to perpetuate this one does searing meat actually seal in the juice the juice of the meat does it make it juicier if you when you sear your meat the belief being that it kind of cauterizes the meat and keeps the juices from coming out we're dealing with food myths on the Fork Report, so we shall return. It is the Fork Report. I'm Neil Savedra, KFI. Hey, everybody, it is the Fork Report, all things food, every single Saturday from 2 to 5. Happy Memorial Day weekend. I'm your well-fed host, Neil Saavedra, hanging out with our new producer, Mondo Hernandez. Uh, Mondo, who happens to have a culinary background. And uh, word on the street is makes guacamole. That's a, that's a true story. It really? Yeah. Fascinating. I make guacamole. Excellent. We'll, uh, we'll, have to, we'll have to talk about that sometime. Uh, I wanted to get. We were talking about food myths. I wanted to get into grilling myths, of course, because it's a it's a big time grilling weekend, right? And and that's like the first thing, right off the bat, is we tend to interchange the term grilling and barbecuing. We don't tend to barbecue here in Southern California. Not that we can't, but mostly what we do 
is grilling. Barbecuing is low temperature, slow. Cooking at long, slow periods of time and really rendering down meat that is best for that. So a lot of intermuscular fats and intermuscular fats rather, and they really base the meat by being in a low temperature for longer periods of time. We grill here quite a bit, and that is higher temperatures and cooking more quickly. Get that sear, get the flavor going, cook that, get it in your mouth. That's what we do quite a bit. Uh, A myth that I hear a lot about is oiling. Do you oil your grates every time? Do you only oil them sometimes? Do you oil your food and oil your grates? Oil's a great thing. Of course, it's going to keep your food from sticking. However, keep in mind that flare-ups, if you have a lot of oil, flare-up, it's going to drip onto your flame, and you're going to get flare-ups. And when you have flare-ups, you're going to get the, the flame actually kissing your food and putting soot on it. And the strange thing about soot is it tastes like soot, not yummy. I learned that the hard way. Yeah, I think we, I think we all do. I think we all, it's like you just, there's a difference. And you remember growing up, um, my dad was good for this. Back in the day when they started a, a, a barbecue and they were going to do some grilling in the backyard, they put used lighter fluid. And everything tasted like sooty lighter <laughs> fluid. So don't use lighter fluid. That's it's it's unnecessary. You can get those chimneys those chimneys for like fifteen bucks or whatever. The Weber's and and you put the the, the cylinder. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. You put you put the briquettes in there and you fire. You put a little newspaper in the bottom. You fire those up and they, they work perfectly. And that's what you want to be doing. You don't want to be putting all that garbage and the chemicals all over the place. Uh. As far as oil goes, yes, you're going to need to oil some things, including seasoning your grill grates. So if your grill grates are, if they're stainless steel, if they're cast iron, or if they're ceramic coated, each one you're going to have to deal with differently, but they're all going to need to be seasoned to a certain degree, meaning that they're going to have to have a layer of that oil that's hard cooked on them. When you season something, You're turning it on high heat. You're putting the oil on there. You're turning it on high heat. It actually changes the molecular structure of the oil and makes it into a a kind of plastic, really. It becomes this this coating that seals the metal and makes it gives it that nonstick quality. So you do want to put. I have a uh, a rolled up rag that is tied with butcher twine. It stays in a Tupperware in the fridge in my backyard, and it stays in that Tupperware. It's filled with vegetable oil, a neutral flavor, a higher smoker, smoking point. I pick it up with tongs, and after I've cleaned my grill, I just rub it over the top and make sure that it's got a nice thin coat of oil. And that's how I finish after I've cleaned the grill, and then I uh, will oil it again when I start up the next time I go to do that and and you end up getting great uh response as far as it being non-stick also having the proper temperature and leaving things on long enough for them to sear once they sear they kind of seal themselves off the temperature of the grate raises again because it's transferring that heat into the food 
and it becomes nonstick at that point. That's why if you leave them on properly and for the proper length of time, you get a nice sear, but it also will release from the metal. If you don't, the metal has these tiny little pores that open up when they're heated, and then when they cool down, they close, and it it physically grabs your food. So the temperature, uh, when it changes, uh, gas versus charcoal. Now, I know you have a view on this, Mondo. Yeah, I love charcoal. I love charcoal. Um, Using gas, I always tend to to taste it. So I just- The gas? Yeah. Gas is tasteless. I can I feel I can taste it. Propane and propane accessories. Mm-hmm. Not about that. I love the charcoal. I love <laughs> I love the a, taste of charcoal. I'm the smell not about of it. That. I love charcoal. It just it's 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 a, a family. It reminds me yeah. of family and just cooking outside. It does. There's I nothing it. like it. I yeah. I do love the smell of solid fuel. There's something about that. You know, interesting thing about Kingsford, uh, the Ford in Kingsford, is the car maker. And when they used to make no wheels out of wood, they'd have leftover chunks, and they com- uh, compressed and burned them to make charcoal and used them. Uh, so the Ford in Kingsford is Ford of the from the car industry. Oh, wow. And they were used to uh, – those leftover wood parts from the cars were turned into charcoal. Briquettes. You're looking at me like I, I, I'm yanking your chain. I'm not. This is what happens when you work with Tim Conway for that long. Yeah. You trust no one. But that's true. Look it up. Google it. True story. True story. That's a good story. (laughs) Oh, boy. That's going to be permeating the show, uh, all those things. Uh, But charcoal is wonderful. A lot of times gas is super convenient. I'm I'm a gas man because of the fact that there's so many laws now about clean air, and they tell you that you can't you know, cook or you can't burn wood. I don't want to deal with all that. So I have an insert. So I use gas and it's quick and easy. And I I also have smoke chips and things like that. But it has an insert on my particular model where I can use the gas to light the wood chunks and cook over wood or charcoal. So I I like to be able to do both. When I had uh, my old setup, I had both as well. I had the the left hand side was gas, the right hand side was solid fuel. Could you ever taste a difference? Yeah, there is a difference. There is actually a difference the uh, the way the the juices fall onto the briquettes and the fat burns and sends flavor back up towards the food. It absolutely uh, can make a difference. Most people can't tell the difference. It just really is not that great. And now with the ceramic tiles inside of the gr- the gas grills they're doing very similar things as so you know but it's it's fun to cook over fire it just is <laughs> all right uh we'll be back with more uh grilling myths so go nowhere it is the fork report Just a devil with love to spare. So, Viva Las Vegas! Viva Las Vegas! 
things food every single Saturday from 2 to 5. Of course, it's Memorial Day weekend, so I hope you're enjoying your family. I'm your well-fed host, Neil Saavedra, hanging out with our brand-new producer, Mondo. Of course, you hear him from the Tim Conway Jr. Show, Monday through Friday. Ding dong! Six, oh boy, six to ten. we got to come up with our own. We'll say ding dong, too, but we'll mean the cake. Oh, yeah. Yeah, totally different because of that. Of course, we were talking about grilling myths. So I want to get into a little bit more as we close out the show, a couple more grilling myths as well. We were talking about that with Bondo, about the different types of things, you know, gas versus charcoal. Fact is, it's it, there is something about the smell of charcoal that really brings you back to a, being a kid. And there's something when you smell that waft, you know, wafting through the neighborhood, it just makes you happy. Yeah, or just it reminds me of the park. Uh, family events, any beach. family event, the beach. Yeah. Ah, it's so that's great. But I should make that a cologne. <laughs> what What are you wearing? I'm wearing charcoal <laughs> by Kingsford. Cleaning the grill. When you clean your grill right after you cook or just before you cook, it, it, it isn't important. You can do it before or after. A lot of people say you've got to do it this time. The key is you have to do it when it's hot. So let it heat up for about five minutes or so on high. And then you can break it down. As far as the dangers of cleaning with a brush, a bristle brush, there's few stories, but they do exist. And from what I can tell, they're real. That some people, the the bristles that are shoved into like a comb or brush, that some of those can come out. The brass ones can come out uh, or the steel ones, and they'll land on your grill. And if the oil will stick to it and may get into your burger, and some people have swallowed them, and they could be a problem. That's happened? From what I can read, that it there is cases where it has happened. As a matter of fact, you're going to notice that a lot of the newer brushes have changed. So I've changed the brushes that I use. I've used both. They also make a wooden handle one that actually starts to wear down at, to the shape and size of your your grill grates specifically and that won't have it doesn't have any bristles in it the one i have is one continual bristle that's twisted uh in a circular manner to uh i'll I'll post pictures uh of it uh because it really is it really is a beast (laughs) it's like oh yeah that'll that'll clean it so uh as far as I'm concerned, that's not a myth. It's real. It just isn't very common to have those bristles come off. But you might want to look into a different type of brush if you're concerned. Or if you, you want to go uh, cheapo style, this works great. You crumple up a ball of foil and you use your tongs. And you just use the ball of foil uh, to scrape off uh, the big stuff. But you want to get it clean regardless. There are... When it comes to cleaning, you want your grates to be clean. You want to clean, wipe down the outside so that it looks nice and and continues to uh, have its beauty. But a lot of uh, grillers will tell you not to clean the inside walls because the it, flavor. Right? Well, not only the flavor, there is it. It actually insulates the inside. You're using on. Oh, gosh, what is it, 304 stainless steel, and depending on the gauge, 14 gauge, whatever it is, um, 
when you build up some a layer of the oils that are burning on there and that fat that we were talking about earlier, it can act as an insulator and end up keeping a more consistent temperature is the belief. So a lot of guys are like, hey, you, you leave that alone on the inside, just kill, you know, clean the grate and then clean the outside so that it doesn't wear unevenly or get scratched or ugly or, you know, those types of things or rust. Um, but I know it's not as pretty. There's something about a brand new grill that's a thing of beauty, but having some of that schmutz on there is not bad. Now, I've heard um, using a potato, if you have nothing else, cut a potato in half, you can use that to clean it to get the gunk out. And also a lemon. A lemon, yes. A lemon because it has acid. Yeah. Um, but the potato, the acid on a potato is pretty low. I wonder what that, maybe it's just the shape of it that I think it the shape forms. is just the, how dense it is. Yeah, it just I forms. Mean, yeah. That's a hot tip. Another thing is to um, steam it. You can get some steam on there and it will break things up. So they make actually hollow handled uh, brushes that s- spray water on and steam it. And it breaks it off, but you can do it with a wet rag and things like that, too, once you've turned it off the flame. You put that on there, it'll steam off a lot of the the gook. Um, but that's a, a hot tip. Lemon is always a great uh, cleaner for things, even pots and pans. A little bit of salt and lemon works really well because the acid in the salt and the kind of uh, granular texture of the salt becomes a, a light abrasive. And it's good for cleaning all kinds of pots and pans as well. Oh, yeah. Ooh, let me see. I want to I end on a high note here. Uh, if you're – okay, let's do this one. About piercing your food, is it wrong to pierce with a fork? Imagine this. If you had a bunch of long balloons, those long, thin ones they make the animals out of, and you tied them, you blew them up, and you tied them all at the end, you you if you put your hand you try to put your hand through them the balloons would separate they'd make room for your hand they're little bands and they'd make room for your hand but if you got a sharp object and hit one it would pop it wouldn't pop all of them so when you're putting your your if you're putting and piercing the steak it's not as a big a deal as if you cut it if you cut those balloons across uh, width-wise or length-wise, they'd all pop. But if you put a knife into the center of them, they'd separate. Maybe you'd hit one. You don't lose as much juice as you think by putting a fork in it. Um, or, uh, for that matter, your thermometer when you're taking its temperature. It's, if you cut into it is when you start causing problems. So if you if you do that, that's fine. Um, you, you're not going to hurt anything to do that. I get that one a lot. Any last thoughts there, Mondo? Uh, just be safe out there. I mean, you're <laughs> <laughs> don't don't die. Yeah, don't lose your eyebrows. <laughs> it happens to the best yeah. of us. Have a wonderful uh, Memorial Day weekend, and yes, be safe. It is the Fork Report. I'm Neil Savedra, KFI, Los Angeles.